Colorado Bible Ranch. I've spent the week there. feel like I'm still there. That's a fav- favorite song that we sing out at Broken Arrow and uh, had a, a great week of meetings. Your uh, students that went with us from here, Did You Proud? They did an awesome job. Giants though they are. It's interesting. I'm, I don't know what God is telling me, but it's somehow all these little kids that used to be in the church have gotten bigger than me. I was like, I was like the shortest guy on the team, and I don't consider myself a, a short person, nor do I consider myself a very old person. However, I can't escape the fact that three members of the team's parents were in my ministry at one time or another. So there's that. And then uh, one of the things I say is I enjoy going to Broken Arrow because it gets me a, gives me an opportunity to tap into my inner youth pastor. I did youth ministry for 25 years, and so I speak twice a week out there, and so or twi- uh, twice a day all week long. And so it's awesome. And I'm used to being, you know, compared to maybe someone's uh, dad, but uh, not less than four times kids told me that I reminded them of their grandma. Grandpa. <laughs> so what is up with that? <laughs> and I will say this, I, I, I want to give you an opportunity as well. Uh, we, we've been going out there for years and years, and we pretty much go every year. We wait for our invitation, but it tends to come. And uh, it's not just a youth trip. My dad went with us years ago uh, when he was in his, uh, in his early 80s and uh, talked about what a great place it is. And, you know, his job was to be grandpa. And they love having grandpas out there. It's a, you know, generally native culture. They, they respect age. And so uh, my dad said it was, it was great for me because I was being respected in ways that sometimes old people aren't. And so uh, I'll see what that's like when I get old. Because uh, <laughs> I am not a grandpa yet. <laughs> so... All right. Well, we're back in the book of Genesis, and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you have been doing uh, throughout this week out in New Mexico, and Lord, throughout this week here in Moreno Valley. And Lord, we anticipate what you're going to do today. Would you speak to us, Lord? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer, and we worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a group of monks that lived in a monastery way out in the woods somewhere, and they took an extreme, they took some extreme vows, one of them being a vow of silence. And as part of that vow of silence, every year on Valentine's Day, they were allowed, to, one person in the group was allowed to say one line, and then they would go for another 364 days. And so at one point, they, they had had the vow of silence for the whole year, and then it turns out that it was uh, Brother Thomas's turn to speak on Valentine's Day. And here's what Brother Thomas says, I love the delightful mashed potatoes we have every year for the Valentine's Day feast. And that was it. You get one line once a year. No more speaking for the next 364 days. 364 days later, it is Brother Michael's turn. And here's what Brother Michael said for his one line. I think the mashed potatoes are lumpy and I truly despise them. (laughs) And they're silent for another 364 days. Finally, Valentine's Day rolls around again and it's Brother Paul's turn. And Brother Paul rose, looked around the room with a disapproving stare, and said, I am fed up with this constant bickering around here. (laughs) There was a widow whose husband had died, 
And of course, on his tombstone, she had written, rest in peace. And uh, that was the way it stayed until she found out that he had left her out of the will. To which she had the tombstone amended to where it said, rest in peace until I get there. Now, I share this because we're going to talk about attitudes this morning. We're going to see this in the account of Joseph this morning. What are the attitudes that really draw people to Christ? Is, is, is it an attitude where you realize your sin? Well, of course, that's a necessary thing. We talked a lot about this last week at Broken Arrow Bible Ranch because the whole point is to lead people into a place where they, young people into a place where they consider, you know, where they stand with Jesus Christ and where are they in their walk with him if they are even in this walk with him. And of course, a, 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 a knowledge of your sinful condition is vital. It is necessary, but quite often that's not the first thing. You see, people have interesting reactions to religion in our society in particular. They, if, if you have a society that has a religious-based law or system, people get kind of scared of that. That produces things like ISIS or the Taliban or the Salem witch trials, okay? So they're a little concerned when religion gets a little too political. Self-righteousness is another uh, characteristic that really offends them. You should be like me. You should be like the good people that go to Crosswinds Church. And of course, the world hates hypocrisy. They, they, and they're able to see it really well. If you're not living what you say you should be living like, then they're, ready, they're, they're quick to point that out. They're quick to be judgmental towards you. However, if we are judgmental towards them, that becomes a very alienating attitude. One thing, though, that seems to cross all barriers between people, and again, we've seen this all this past week at Broken Arrow, is a demonstrated love and forgiveness for people. And those are attitudes that come from God through us. That's, those are the things that we do for the people in our worlds as we interact with them, as we pray for the people that we have on our cards. And if you don't know what this card is, grab one on the way out. There's instructions on the back of how you can recognize your place in the world that God has you at work, at school, there in your neighborhood. And we pray for the people around us, that, and we realize that we are God's hand reaching into that environment. I was telling somebody this morning, how um, I, I'm getting physical therapy. Some of you have been commenting for quite a while now that, uh, Pastor Willie, you seem to be limping. A and I have been. And I thought that uh, I had arthritis in my knee or something like that. I went to see a physical therapist, and amazingly, uh, he said, nope, you don't have any arthritis. You don't have anything physically wrong there except what you're doing to yourself. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I watched you walk in here. And he says, you're walking incorrectly. I walk with my feet pointed out like that. And he said, eventually that's going to wear your knee down like it's doing. So now he's got me doing exercises and he's got me, I have to walk in a way where I think that I am walking pigeon-toed, but when I look down, my feet are straight. And so I have to think about every step I take. And when my physical therapist said that, I said, wow, that's kind of like Ephesians 5. I have to walk in a way that is wise and not unwise. I have to think about how I walk. Well, thank you. And, and as I'm saying this to my physical therapist, he's like, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, 
yeah, I mean, okay, do what the Bible says if it's telling you to turn your toes in and, and keep walking. <laughs> so you see, he's in my world, and that's sort of the first volley <laughs> in my interaction with him. He is a minister to God. He don't know it yet, but, well, he does know, you know, what I've told him so far. And so those are the kind of conversations we are going to have. But it's those, that's the kind of attitude. I mean, I could approach him and I could say, do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? No. Well, what's wrong with you? <laughs> That's not going to be too, uh, uh, he's not going to be too kind towards uh, religion. That's why, if you think about it, way back in 2005, we had a Category 5 hurricane in the South known as Hurricane Katrina. And Hurricane Katrina devastated the lower ninth ward of New Orleans. We have a ministry that we, uh, that we uh, support there, Desire Street Ministries. And it's in the lower ninth ward. And I went there a couple of years after this. That's, uh, that, that's the, the water from the breach in the lake that just basically destroyed that whole part of town. And to this day, that part of the town is pretty much still destroyed. And when you heard the news back then about what was happening with uh, Katrina, you heard about the, the, the 10 to 30,000 people that were being housed in the Superdome and how they were getting some relief from various relief organizations. But one of the things you didn't necessarily hear a whole lot about were the hundreds of thousands of people were ministered to by the churches in the area. Churches were reaching out to people, and in fact, they still are. The Evangelical Free Church, our denomination, has a team called the Crisis Response Team, and we can still put together a team to go and continue to work to, uh, reco in recovery work in the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans. Almost 20 years later, they're still working on it. And they're doing that, if you think about this, they're doing this in a city which is kind of, it's famous for what? It's famous for Mardi Gras. I heard somebody once reference that New Orleans is sort of like the Las Vegas of the South. Well, in some ways, at least religiously, it's worse. Because you see, Mardi Gras is really sort of a, uh, it, it's a mocking of our Christian faith and our Christian lifestyle. And the cool thing about it is that as, as these churches were reaching out to the people in their world that were underwater now, you didn't hear people referencing that. I never heard anyone say something along the lines of, well, it's about time New Orleans got treated like this by God. You know, they deserve it for what... I, I didn't hear any... I'm not saying nobody said that, but I didn't hear it. And overwhelmingly, what we saw was people saying, how can we help you? And they're still doing it nearly 20 years later. And I'm here to tell you guys, there is power in that attitude. God's mission is advanced. God's work is advanced. When we choose to forgive people rather than to judge them or hold a grudge against them, God's power is demonstrated in us and through us. We see it here in Moreno Valley every week through our street ministry. I'll tell you right now, there are people, they, they have been criticized by people in Moreno Valley saying, why are you just enabling those people? Why are you giving them food? We should be starving them out so they go away. They go to some other city. And uh, I love the members of our street ministry who are very simple about it. The God's word says, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. We're out here serving Jesus by serving these people. St. Francis of Assisi famously uh, was said to have said this, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. <laughs> Meaning what we do is sometimes far more powerful 
And, and they're hearing that, quote unquote, far more than the words that we say. I like to actually modify it and say, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And that's, again, what I love about our street ministry. I got a report this morning. There were two more people yesterday who came to know Christ as a result of our street ministry. They are exact. Yeah, amen. Amen. Give praise to God for that. And, you know, and so there's an example where we are preaching the gospel through our actions, but we're using our mouths as well. We're using our words. And I see all of this, all lead in to what I see happening in the life of Joseph this morning. Take your Bibles or your, or your uh, tablets or, or devices or whatever you have and turn to Genesis chapter 43. And we're going to pick up this morning at verse 16. I would encourage you to take notes. Uh, we gave you note cards at the door. If you didn't get one, put your hand up. We'll get one of those to you. And of course, if you're joining us online, you can, there we are. As you're joining us online, you can access all of that material uh, through our church app, which of course you can, I, I understand there's a lot of people that use the church app right here in this room. So make sure you have, uh, have downloaded the church app. It is, uh, it was difficult as we've been seeing up to this point, it was difficult to convince father Jacob to let his sons go back to Egypt. But, of course, they were getting hungry again. The food that they had gotten from the Egyptian ruler, who they so far don't know is their brother Joseph, that they thought they had sold off into slavery and by now was probably dead. They don't know who he is yet, but he gave them grain and did a few other things that gave them their money back. They're a little bit concerned about that. They don't know really what's going on. And he said, when you come back, don't come back without your younger brother, Benjamin. And Jacob was like, absolutely not. I've already lost Joseph. I'm not going to lose Benjamin too. And by the way, they kept Simeon there. So Simeon is sitting in jail while the family is dragging their feet coming back. <laughs> and so, so finally, Jacob relents. And he says to them, all right, let's, uh, let, let me give you some stuff to take back to this Egyptian ruler. Take back double the money just in case he has an issue with the fact that we didn't pay for the first grain, take back twice as much money so we can pay uh, everything that we owe and take some fruit and some balm and some honey and gum and myrrh and pistachios and almonds. What's he doing? He's trying to bribe this guy, okay? Here, here, this is a bunch of good stuff. You really like us, don't you? In verse 15 here in Genesis 43 says, So the men, the brothers, took these presents, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. So Jacob, you know, your, uh, your hunger will motivate you to do a lot of things. <laughs> and so they got everything that, uh, that Joseph was asking for. And they arose and they went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. And as we have been seeing quite a few times already, these brothers know what they have done. They, they've, they've come, they're having to confront the fact of the things that they did to Joseph. Something that amazingly, although not amazing and from my perspective, they apparently hadn't talked about. I say not amazingly because there are uncomfortable subjects in my life that I don't want to talk about. I don't want to bring them up. They, 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 that, it, it, those are not my finer moments. Let's just, let's just keep on going, okay? Let's not talk about that. And obviously, that's what they had done. And so all of this stuff that Joseph is doing is leading them to actually confront 
what they have done. There's a purpose behind this. Joseph is not just toying with them as you would a cat, you know, with a, with a laser beam, okay? He, he's actually, as we're going to see as we go through this over the next uh, few weeks, uh, we're going to see the purpose that Joseph has in what they are doing. Today, we're going to see uh, the effects of what is happening to the brothers. And the first thing we see this morning is that they're beginning to feel the effects of their guilt. They know they're guilty. We know they're guilty. Now they're starting to see some, we're starting to see some of the effects. Look at verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, is it because of the money? which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us slaves and seize our donkeys. I mean, these guys just can't take a compliment. You know, <laughs> every time Joseph does something good for them, they immediately interpret it through, obviously, their guilt. Sir Walter Scott famously said, oh, the tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. And these boys had, had good uh, instruction from their dad, Jacob, who is known as the deceiver, deceiver. And they as well are now living this rough and deceptive life. And the trouble is, you know, here are guys that are deceiving when they say things, for instance, we are honest men. They've said that a few times now if you've been with us. And if you haven't, you can see all the previous messages online. But they've said, you know, we're the sons of one father and we come from this place. And, you know, okay, check, check, check. And then they get to, oh, and we are honest men. They know better than that. They know they're not. But they haven't really confronted that. What we've seen of these guys is, again, they know they're guilty, but it's affecting everything they do. Here they are. They're being welcomed into Joseph's house. And it says here that they are afraid. And why are they afraid? Well, it must be about the money. He, he can't just be being nice to us. He's out to get us. It, it kind of reminds me when I go up to somebody and I say, uh, hey, you know, when you get a chance this week, could you come down to my office and, you know, I'd like to talk with you. Yeah, some of, I saw some of you go, you know, as soon as I said that, you know, it's like, well, you know, immediately, what are we thinking? What have I done? You know, and then you start, you know, ticking it off. And maybe, hopefully, probably most of the time, you haven't done anything. And what do you assume? I must have done something. I just have forgotten about it. But imagine if you're like the brothers here and you have done something and you've been keeping it a secret. And then the pastor says, come and talk to me, my child. <laughs> Immediately, probably, and I say this because I feel the same way. It's, it's when I get a summons like that, then it's like, in fact, the little secret, guys, is when you come to me and say, pastor, could I come in and talk with you? I go through the exact same thing. What have I done? What? <laughs> Did I say something to them? I, I go back and I look through my, no, what did I say? Because it's nine times out of 10, it's something I said because, you know, I can't keep my mouth shut. I'm talking all the time. And, so, and fortunately, most of the time, it's like, I just wanted to get together and tell you what a wonderful guy you are. And, and most of the time, that's what I'm doing. You know, I thought, I'd just be good for us to, to sit down and talk. And, and yet, if there is something, 
it's almost like, how did, did they find out? Do they know my deep, dark secret? Is the pastor going to confront me with that? That's what's happening to be able to maybe identify a little bit emotionally with what these brothers are going through. Because you see, they haven't resolved that issue. Actually, that's a good clue for the rest of us. If there is something like that in your life, that's God kind of nudging you. Maybe you need to deal with this. You need to actually take care of this. Because you see, unresolved guilt always magnifies anxiety. Shakespeare said, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. You're constantly worrying, is somebody going to find out what I've done? And I'm convinced, guys, that this is where we find many, maybe even most people today. In fact, I guess in one sense you could say all people today. Because either we are guilty for something that we know that we have done, or, and this is everybody, we're all guilty for, before God because we all are guilty before God. Romans 3.23 tells us that, and all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, when you go through the book of Romans, at one point we were talking this week about what's your, what's your favorite part of the Bible, and mine is arguably Romans. But Romans opens up kind of rough. <laughs> the first three chapters of Romans, it's like Paul saying, now let me tell you how bad you are, and now you're bad about this, and this is where you're not bad. In fact, uh, theologians call the first three chapters of Romans the doctrine of condemnation. Yeah, we sort of like the doctrine of, you know, encouragement and the doctrine. No, this is, and what's Paul doing? He's getting us to a point where we understand who we really are so that he can then say, I'm not just talking theoretically here when I talk about people needing Christ. I'm talking about you. You, Willie, you need Christ. And let me prove it to you in a whole bunch of words. I always find it interesting when I read through the book of Revelation, and I actually had this question last week uh, from one of the kids at camp, and they talked about, you know, when we get to heaven, are we going to, are we going to forget all the bad things that happened to us? They want to know, are we going to have my, am I going to have my personality? You know, the Bible says I'm not going to have my husband or my wife, and you know, so what's up with that? The, the, quest, the answer to the question is, is largely we don't know. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about heaven, but we get bits and pieces. And one part that's always made me wonder is Revelation 21. And Revelation 21 talks about all these wonderful things that are coming. I, I often read it to myself just to encourage me when I'm going through difficult times, that this is what's coming. It's like, it's like, you know, I got a Disneyland trip in the future. Well, this is far better than that. But it does say this in the midst of all of it. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, the part of, that's always made me wonder is, why are there tears in heaven? Why is God, with all these wonderful things happening, I know, people say it could be tears of joy, and maybe it is, but it also, I kind of wonder sometimes that maybe some of those tears are going to be tears of regret. Maybe it's going to be tears of missed opportunities of those times when I know now, as I am known, I could have said something. I could have done something. That person, you know, not that it's going to be my fault. It's not going to be my fault that somebody isn't in heaven, but it is if I've had, it's not my fault, but it does impact me if I have an opportunity that I don't take advantage of. Why do we allow ourselves to live this way? 
Notice the, the difference between these brothers and Joseph. Joseph, with everything he went through, all of the, 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 the persecutions and all the stuff that he had, his life, though, is characterized overwhelmingly by peace and freedom in the midst of slavery, while over on the other side are the brothers, and their lives are filled with sorrow and suspicion and bondage, even while they are enjoying their freedom. You could say that out of Joseph's slavery came freedom, and out of the brother's freedom comes slavery. Sound familiar? That's, that's Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, the apostle Paul develops this idea that we are all slaves. As, uh, uh, as one songwriter put it, we all got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or the Lord. And Joseph, a la Romans 6, was a slave to righteousness while the brothers are slaves to sin. So what do the brothers do about this guilt and this fear that they experience? Well, we should know because we do it all the time. They tried to make a deal. Look at verse 19. And so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and they spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, oh my Lord, we come down here the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened up our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. And so we have here brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put our money back in our sacks and jump down to verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents which they had brought with them and bowed down to the ground. <laughs> the brothers came with all kinds of explanations. They brought their gifts. But let's be honest, what are they really doing here? They're trying to make everything right through their own efforts. But their fact is, guys, they couldn't do it. They could never, with, with gifts and, and with displays uh, the, like they're doing here, they could never gloss over the things that they had done. They would never be able, for instance, I guess if Joseph had wanted anything, he'd want his life back for all those years that he was a slave. But that doesn't stop them, or us for that matter, from trying. I read this week about an individual who sent a letter, a note to the IRS. And here's what it said. Dear sirs, I haven't been able to sleep because last year when I filled out my income tax report, I deliberately misrepresented my income. And so I am enclosing a check for $150. P.S. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. <laughs> now we know that's not true because you can't send a letter like that to the IRS or they'll be knocking on your door. But what are they doing here? What's he doing? He's, we, we're trying to make something right. We're trying to solve the problem. Why? because it'll make me feel better. That's the idea behind penance. Penance is, is something, you know, I, I suffer a little bit because that way it'll make me feel better, like I've, like I've paid for my sins, if you will. I remember years ago, somebody, it, it doesn't even, probably even have to be years ago, but I remember a specific situation where I had promised somebody that I would light, write them a letter of reference. And I promised I'll write this letter, I'll have it for you on this day, and then I totally forgot. And when the person came up to me and said, okay, do you have that letter? I'm like, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot. And they were like, oh, it's okay. And I said, no, it's not okay. I'm going to write that letter and I'm going to bring it to your work. They worked over in Redlands. I'm going to bring it over to you and I'm going to hand it. And they're like, pastor, you don't have to do that. It's not that. Safe. No, no, I got to do this. In fact, I'd only got, I had to do that because I needed, it wasn't for them. They didn't need it that fast. But I needed to do that in order to make me feel good. 
Guys, there's only one thing that is going to make things right. There's only one thing that's going to restore the relationship between the brothers and Joseph, and they have no control over it except to accept it. They experience next an amazing grace. Look at verse 23. Joseph replied, peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in in your sacks for you. I received your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and had given them water and they they had washed their feet and when he had given them their donkey's fodder, they prepared a present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. And when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the presents that they had had with them, and they bowed down to him on the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of who you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He's still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw his brother Benjamin and his mother's son. And he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his companions grew warm, his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber, and he wept there. He's very moved by meeting this brother he had never met. Verse 31, and then he washed his face, and he came out after controlling himself, and he said, serve the food. And they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews for it was an abomination to the Egyptians. That's another message. And they they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And catch this. And the men, the brothers of Joseph, they looked at one another in amazement. (laughs) Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portions was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank, and they were merry with him. What's happening to them, and what is their reaction here? It says that they are amazed, and it says that right after he had gotten the order of their birth correct, and the odds of doing that are one in nearly 40,000. There are like 40,000 different ways, actually million, 40 million different ways he could have ordered them, but he got it exactly right. But I think their amazement, guys, goes even further than that. I think they're amazed with everything that is happening to them. It's obvious that these guys are expecting something very different from this Egyptian. They were probably expecting that at the very least, they were going to end up in prison like Simeon already has. They were probably expecting torture. Maybe even this guy would execute them and put them to death. Now, why would they expect things like that? Well, that's simple. They deserved it. Look what they had done to their brother Joseph. And and they've been saying it all along. God is obviously mad at us and he has a right to be. And yet, what did they actually get? They were reminded that God had given them treasure. They were seated for a feast. But even more food came to them from the prime minister's table. They had been starving and now they have in abundance. They're getting stuffed, if you will. Their fear is replaced by rejoicing. It says here in verse 34, they drank and were merry with him. They are experiencing, guys, God's amazing grace through Joseph. Much like the New Orleanians have been since Katrina through the believers in those communities. 
What do we get out of Joseph's response to his brothers? The fact is, think about this, guys. Joseph holds all the cards here. Unlike 20 years before, now Joseph has all the power. He is completely controlling this situation. So he could have had his revenge. He could have destroyed them all. And who knows, maybe that would even to some degree have felt good, at least for a little while. But what a disaster that would have been for the plan of God. And so because Joseph is willing to trust God, no matter what situation he finds himself in, God is able to bring a tremendous good, not only to Joseph, but to all of the Hebrews, as we're going to see, through the experiences, the bad experiences primarily, that Joseph had. And so many of us, unlike Joseph, allow our backgrounds to hold us captive. I heard a lot of stories this week from people that, young people that talked about where they've come from and what's going on in their house and how they were been brought up and the way people have treated them. And, and primarily, and it's not unusual to find those same people saying, I hate them and I will never have anything to do with them. We hold a grudge against those people. And I don't doubt that there are people here this morning that are in that boat. You don't know what they've done to me. You don't know how they treat me and continue to treat me. And yet, what does Ephesians 4 tell us? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I had a debate with one of the leaders at, uh, at Broken Arrow, not an official debate, just between him and I. And we were talking about how do you forgive people? And he wanted desperately to say, I don't, there are certain people I don't have to forgive because they're not asking for forgiveness. And, and, and you know, they're not, they, they're treating me this way, therefore it's okay for me to treat them. And the last thing I want to do is let them off the hook and, and forgive them. And I quoted this passage to him and I said, it says here, forgiving each other as God in Christ forgave me. I'm sorry, but when Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, nobody, there were very few people asking him for forgiveness. I certainly wasn't, you weren't. So Christ's forgiveness was not based on how he felt about them. I have people say, well, I can't honestly give forgiveness because I don't feel it. It would be, I would be a hypocrite to say it. Well, because it's not a matter of how you feel. It's a matter of obedience. God says, do it. And I do it. And I'll be the first to say there's some people that that's hard for me to feel the right way. But guess what? When I start off being obedient to God, there's some people where I've, I've literally had to say, Lord, you know how I feel. I'm not fooling you, but your word tells me that I am to forgive as I have been forgiven. You forgave me before I ever wanted anything to do with you. And so, Lord, I'm doing this as an act of obedience. And it's amazing how my feelings change towards those people. God works in my life. Those of us who are bitter over those past hurts, and I've been there, and I'm sure I'll be there again. We refuse to forgive those people that have hurt us. And, and the, the sad thing is we are actually hurting ourselves because that kind of an attitude separates us from God. That's what's happening to the brothers. That's, that's some of the angst that they are feeling. In 1 John 4, it says, If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For who does not lo- he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The stakes are pretty high for not loving those that God has called us to. But not just for ourselves. In Hebrews 12, 14, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, bitterness and unforgiveness is pictured throughout Scripture as a weed, And if you want to know the effects of weeds, if you need to see that, just go out back here. (laughs) They are all over the place. Bitterness will not only trouble you, it'll trouble others. It'll become unmistakable. We'll know that there's something going on in your life and it gets worse. And it's easy to grow. I've shared how Jackie and I are the people where we, we are the house where house plants come to die. They don't live in our house. And yet... I can grow weeds with the best of them, okay? They, they thrive in my yard that every weekend I, I discover that. And some of us guys need to allow God's weed whacker, if you will, his Holy Spirit, to come in and remove that bitter root in your life. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Don't try to, well, how can I make myself do the right? No, ask for God. You know, Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit, And don't carry out the desires of the flesh. And replace those attitudes of bitterness and anger with grace. The grace of God. And that's what Joseph is, guys. Over and over again, we see Joseph as a picture of the grace of God. An even better picture is what we're going to be celebrating here in a couple of minutes. Here at this table. Many of us, if not all of us, come to God like Joseph's brothers. We know we're guilty. We know we're scared of him. We know he's going to zap us, right? That's what God is going to do because I'm such an awful person. And yet what happened instead? And maybe today you need to experience this. God demonstrates in sending his son, Jesus Christ, an incredible generosity, an incredible grace, an incredible mercy. Grace and mercy are like two sides of the same coin. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. And both of them are pictured at this table this morning. Instead of being blamed for what we've done, we're forgiven. Instead of feeling guilty, we're set free. Instead of punishment, which we deserve, honestly, we are seated like Joseph's brothers at his table. We eat his food. And still, I know I've talked with people like this. For some of us, it's too much. Complete and total forgiveness, even sometimes for ourselves, just doesn't seem fair. God can't do that for me. He doesn't, you know, look at what I've done. It doesn't make sense. People don't just act that way. Yeah, people don't, but God does. And so we try to plead our case. We try to do it ourselves. We bring our gifts to God. We try and appease him. You know, you sometimes you look at the cults and you see all the works that they have to do. And here we are in, in the real church of Jesus Christ. And all we do is, is receive what God has done on our behalf. It seems easy. And yet these cults, we sometimes admire them, right? Man, they put in so much work. They, they give so much money. They put out so much effort. Well, there's a reason they're doing that because they're trying to, do, they're trying to avoid the gift of God in his son Jesus Christ and do it themselves. The sad thing is we can never do enough to earn that gift of God.